And good morning and welcome to The Skinny here on WMNF for Friday, June 23rd. I'm Mitch Perry, senior political reporter for the Florida Phoenix, joined by creative loafing editor-in-chief Ray Roa and author and freelance journalist Ben Montgomery. Gents, good to see you this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Soon everybody. Welder, maybe. All right. Oh, welder. Yeah. I like that. On the program today, we will delve into the issue of education in the state of Florida, where the crackdown continues on teachers who are under siege for, in some cases, being charged with allegedly, allegedly indoctrinating students with rules being added, rights eroded, that teachers are reportedly quitting at record numbers. Tampa Bay Times reporter Lane DeGregory recently reported on one teacher who said she couldn't deal with it all and left at the end of the recent school year. Lane and that instructor will be with us later in the show. Uh, first up, we're going to have, in a few minutes, uh, political strategist Barry Edwards. Actually, let's just say uh, we were going to have uh, former, or not former, very much current state senator Daryl Roussan in studio. Daryl works as an attorney, though, and actually he had some legal situation he had to deal with today. So we'll hopefully get him on in a couple of weeks. Um, and then Barry, who uh, works with Daryl and works with a lot of people uh, in terms of politics here in Florida, uh, for both sides of the aisle, actually, will be in here uh, in a few minutes here. But, folks, I want to begin with this because I was going to talk to Barry Edwards about this. This is kind of wild. Okay, so we know we have three Florida men running for president right now, the Republican nomination. Uh, that's Donald Trump, um, Ron DeSantis, of course, and um, recent, most recently Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. A fourth person? Yesterday, the New York Times, a, you know, a credible source, wrote a story saying that there was reports that Rick Scott was going to put his hat in the ring. Of course, our senior, our junior senator, who's going to be running for, or so we have thought, for re-election for U.S. Senate next next year. Uh, Scott did, uh, let's say later in the day, no, not happening. And there's been some uh, speculation that it was put out by some of his people just, I don't know, as a way to burn Ron DeSantis because the two don't get along. It's kind of a weird thing, but um, this ties into uh, the fact that we're, you know, the Democrats are going to have their big leadership blue event in Miami in a couple weeks. This is where they try to rally the forces, the whole party gets together. And one of the things I know they're going to be talking about is like how we're going to do better in 2024, which I don't know if that's going to happen, by the way, because uh, another story that came out this week is Republicans have now outdistanced Democrats in the state of Florida by 500,000. This is the largest margin that Republicans have ever had in the state of Florida. So folks are thinking like it can only it can't get any worse. And, you know, Democrats are going to make a comeback next year. Maybe not. But nevertheless, so um, what do you guys think about this? Um, Rick Scott, who in all three of his elections won by a majority uh, or the most was one point each. Uh, he spent record hundreds of millions of dollars uh, all, all three times, and he barely won. The last time he won by half a percent against Bill Nelson in 2018. And yet the way that the atmosphere is in Florida I don't think anybody believes, because the Democrats don't even have a legitimate candidate that's announced yet, that Rick Scott is not going to win re-election at this point next year. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what Rick Scott brings to the race or the, or the primary at all. I mean, this is the Rick Scott who gutted the unemployment system in Florida, once said that the coronavirus stimulus pay, you know, was paying low-wage workers too much. And then let's not forget about the Medicare fraud. He kind of has all the villain stuff in his pocket already, but he's still not like the biggest villain that would attract uh, the most votes or excite the base, right? So. Um, I sort of still blame him every time I'm stuck in traffic between Tampa and Orlando for rejecting that federal uh, back in 2010 stimulus money for the high speed rail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's a, a good testament to the fact that you know some people think the memories are short, but there's a lot of people, and maybe we're mummies, mummies, Ben. But it's like we remember that stuff, and every time we're on I four, we talk about it with our friends. Hey, remember that? And I mean, there's literally bumper stickers that say Rick Scott is an expletive. 
Yeah. Right? So, 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 so listen, he can't. I mean, nobody looking at this race uh, sees this field, uh, right? If you're if you're Rick Scott's number one fan, you cannot. I, I don't think look at this race and see this crowded field and think he has a chance of becoming the next. Well, let's Republican be honest. I mean, Will, Will Hurd, is that right? Congressman from Texas. I don't know if you guys saw this the other day. Uh, announced he's running. More Republicans come out and announce every day they're running when it's seemingly. Well, what's the play here, though? What's the play yeah. here for Rick Scott to get uh, to get uh, an early start on on claiming a seat in the next administration? You know, I I can't make heads or tails out of it, but I know that he wants to be part of the. He wants people you, to talk about. It. It's like we're doing today. You can't relevant. think he has real presidential ambitions, though. Oh, he do, does. Do, he do you think he, so? And look, he has been underestimated. If nothing else we can say about Rick Scott. Uh, you know, in terms of he, and, and I will say this: he, I thought he outworked Bill Nelson big time. Twenty eighteen, Bill Nelson seemed to f- just phone it in. I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, when you run your whole platform on, I went to space. You know. Well, not fun. Well, you know, they only had one debate, and I think that was actually a Telemundo debate. And 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 Rick Scott wanted to debate Bill Nelson more. And one, this is a true story. CNN offered airtime like 10 p.m. at night, and and Nelson said, you know, no, I don't want to do it for whatever reason. I don't know why he didn't, but some people speculated it was it was kind of late. You know, maybe he wouldn't have a lot of energy. He did. He he landed well on his feet. By the way, he's now running NASA uh, under the Joe Biden administration. But anyway, I just find it so uh, interesting. But again, the Democrats and let's let's segue into news about Andrew Warren yesterday, where he lost the Florida Supreme Court as he attend. You know, again, his legal battles are are dwindling now. Uh, ever since, of course, we're going back to his suspension. From by Ron DeSantis last August. We're going now oh, nearly a year now where he's uh, been out of, of uh, lost his job. And and again, you know, Andrew Warren, whenever you talk, and I've asked maybe once, whatever, to his team, wherever, about what's he going to do in 2024? It's always like, no, no, we're not thinking about that. We're thinking about uh, getting our job back, you know, through the court system. And again, he still has an appeal through the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals at the 11th Circuit, um, you know, which is skewed very conservatively, by the way. So I wouldn't put a whole lot of hopes on that. But nevertheless, uh, what, whether it's a Senate bid in 2024, because the Democrats are looking for a few good men or women to run. But again, I said this the day this happened back last August, why doesn't he, you know, run for his seat again? You know that he that he that he was unceremoniously taken away from him uh, against the current person who DeSantis put in there. I mean, he won re-election by uh, five points, I believe, in 2020. As we've all said, he was a, a popularly elected uh, a state attorney here. And you know, on the surface of it, yes, Hillsborough is getting a little more red from a couple years ago, but nevertheless. Uh, it, it would be fascinating, and he would have so much. Uh, it'd be so interesting his justification for wanting to get back his job. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you hit it on the head. He's is very electable. I think when Ben and I talked with the state attorney, he was very earnest. He sounded wounded by being removed from the job. It seemed like he uh, does enjoy serving constituents. Um, but there's also like a lot of things that we don't know. Like, what if Ron DeSantis is still governor? Right. So when when would he he'd be up for re-election in 
Well, Ronson can't run for no, it no, again. No, no, I'm talking about Andrew. Andrew that well, race again, would be next, in, next November, a uh, right. year so, and a half, or a little over a year. So, I mean, what if this, like, DeSantis isn't the candidate at that point? Let's say it's Trump. So mm. DeSantis could very well just remove him again if well, he wins, right? That is, well, that is, wait, it would open up so many different storylines <laughs> before we get to the actual election because, of course, Andrew would, would have to win. Um, and then it goes to, like, what are you going to do, Ron DeSantis? Uh, fire him again? Because he said way back in 2022 that he wouldn't prosecute abortion cases. That would be, uh, you know, a fascinating scenario because, you know, we'll see what happens with Ron DeSantis. It doesn't look great for his, you know, presidential ambitions right now, although I do think it's too early to And he's got so much money. He does have, he's got that $82 million he moved over to his uh, PAC, um, which is being challenged, by the way. I thought this hurt from uh, Larry Hogan, the Republican former governor of Maryland, uh, uh, in a recent CBS News interview. He called uh, DeSantis' campaign, quote, one of the worst I've seen so far. This is a man with some political experience. He added, everyone was thinking he was the guy to beat, and now I don't think too many people think that. What's your assessment of that? You, you, You buy it? A little bit. I mean, we're kind of in this vacuum in Florida. Like, our whole, like, laser focus is DeSantis. Like, if you look at our website, DeSantis, DeSantis, DeSantis. I mean, it is. So, in a way, we're kind of different. But I don't know if even locally, I feel like we're not talking about him as much. Like, this is a guy that loves to make headlines, right? DeSantis makes his own news. Have you really felt like he's been like the lightning rod? I think he's like not since his campaign. Started. Well, he was here Is in Tampa yesterday, though. And if you saw bit? that, I was actually still in Tallahassee, but uh, he was in Tampa yesterday for uh, this announcement that the uh, right the state is challenging this education. Uh, I forget forget exactly what it was now it's not in front of my but but he was here actually yesterday doing his gubernatorial because sometimes it's hard to figure out when he's doing the gubernatorial I think stuff he just made your point though you forgot why he was here I, yeah right? that's exactly. kind of embarrassing so, on my part no no, no i mean i'm just saying <laughs> right maybe everyone else call did in right now well, barry edwards niche. is not in studio right now and barry was we're all gonna have you until 11 30 so you know two three nine nine six six three eight one three two three nine nine six six three if you want to chime in this is something else we should talk about for a moment uh because it was so big politically a year ago the Dobbs decision, of course, you know, everybody knows tomorrow is the uh, one year anniversary of the federal of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, overturning a woman's right to a, f- a federal abortion, basically, uh, you know, but brought it back to the states. Although this is interesting. I have a story out today. If I could give a plug on the Florida Phoenix website about where the three Republicans who are running what their stances are for president on abortion. Um, but what we are seeing is that, uh, you know, politically, this was, you know, an earthquake. Uh, in terms of how it affected the election in 2022. Uh, nationally, not so much here in Florida. It really had no impact whatsoever. We'll see if it does in 2024, if the folks who are trying to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot here. But uh, uh, I was going to say... Oh, yeah, I'd like to make a point about that, though, yeah. uh, Mitch, and you brought this up just a moment ago. I don't think we're talking about this enough, but in the two years between the last... Uh, between the overwhelming Ron DeSantis... Uh, Sorry, I'm sorry. Between his his squeak him squeaking by Gillum, in eighteen, yeah, by one percentage point, and him beating Charlie Crist by nineteen percentage points in that time period, Florida registered six hundred thousand new Republicans. It was the same time period where Governor DeSantis was on Fox News re- routinely inviting people to come to Florida because we were free, we were open, we had a business environment that was ready to work for you, and you could sit on the beach and so on and so forth. We were choking out woke. 
I don't. I think we have underestimated the number of Republicans who moved to Florida in those two years, uh, and 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 I think it's um, you know so the biggest piece of evidence I can find that suggests this is the case is that he won over Charlie Crist by 19 percentage points. This is a guy who had great net name recognition, albeit some baggage and so forth. But, uh, but and in he, fact, uh, in yeah. the red wave in the other parts of the country that was expected, this this pushback, this red wave that everybody predicted did not happen in those other places. Absolutely. It did in Florida. It and you know what the thing else. is? I think is, everyone is even here. now, okay, it may be like four points, but right now, but as a, when I wrote about this a couple weeks ago, even with these 500,000 more advantage of Republicans over Democrats in the state of Florida, you know how much that is affected percentage-wise? About 3%. It's roughly 37.5% Republican in the state, 34% Democrat, and about 30% NPA. Uh, so that means that the independents uh, Barry Edwards, the independents have been going very much also to the conservative uh, level here. Uh, we welcome Barry Edwards, political strategist, who uh, filling in for Daryl Rasson. And uh, hey, Barry, good to see you. We can't fill in for Daryl, but... Uh, uh, no, nobody can do that. <laughs> uh, you're talking about independence. Actually, I'm a kind of an expert on that. Well, but what's, oh, by the way, when I, did, I interviewed you for Bay News 9 when this happened last year, and you underestimated what the impact was going to be, in my opinion. You said that it, it was going to be in terms of the abortion strike down of the Supreme Court. Uh, now, again, Florida is a kind of a unique... Well, and, and I remember all my analysis was based on Florida, and I think you have to look at other states. I think the media painted a broad brush. I think abortion was not as decisive as most people say when you look state by state. But we don't know about them. We do know about Florida. Abortion was not an issue, or if it was an issue, it was an issue that benefited the Republicans mm. at that point. And it didn't benefit, say, Nikki Freed, right, when she was running against Charlie Christ and we in Well, we talked about that. Her campaign, two-thirds of her uh, messaging was based on abortion, and she only got 34%, I think, or 36% of the of the vote in a Democratic primary. So if abortion so, was so driving, then why did it not Why is the state so out of, of um, I know it's obviously more Republicans, we've been saying, but it's, it, it really seems to be out of the mainstream almost uh, on some of these things when it comes to what the national dialogue is and what's going on here in this well, uh, well, well, when abortion for the last election cycle, which we have real results on, it was based on a 15-week uh, uh, ban. ban. And from my polling and talking to a lot of pollsters, you know, I'm very close with Matt Towery at Pigeon Savvy, who was ranked number two in the whole country, lives in St. Petersburg now, uh, by Real Clear Politics as far as the last uh, two cycles. Uh, most people are comfortable. The sweet spot is between 15 and 24 weeks. And I think if the Republicans were smart from a political point of view, not from a moral point of view, but from a political point of view, you'd pick 15 to 24. People are happy with it. They can deal with it. Now, people on both sides are going to be grumpy on the ones that want zero and ones that want unlimited. Uh, six weeks is too little for most Republicans. And what I found is very interesting when we did a bunch of focus groups and we did about uh, uh, 20 focus groups. It wasn't. 25-year-old women and 30-year-old women that were so outraged by the six weeks. Guess who it was? 30, 35-year-old men. Mm. They don't want, and I and, and, and I don't want to get calls at about sexism, but yeah. men, some men like to have sex. Mm. And they when they have sex, they may not do it in a proper, protected manner. Mm -hmm. And But if they do, they don't want to have the responsibility right, right. of the kid. Mm -hmm. And it was, so when you see these referendums going down if, in the exit polling, it's 30-year-old guys that are saying, okay, I wasn't responsible, but I don't want to pay the price. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that makes sense to me. I, you're right. Maybe politically incorrect to <laughs> and, talk and, about and, that, but it's, I and, think it's... And, and they're voting like 90% Republican, 30-year-old guys are saying, this is screwed up policy. So I think the Republicans have overreached. I think in the end, that's going to hurt Ron DeSantis. 
Does, does he still have a? What do you think about DeSantis right now in terms of? The, again, we were five months away from Iowa, uh, so there's still a, a lifetime away, as we say in politics. And Ron DeSantis, when he entered the race last month, he said there's only three people he believes who can win the White House: Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or himself. Do you think that's still the case right now? No. Uh, well, first of all, we are very bad at predicting uh, presidential primaries. You don't say. <laughs> and, 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 and there's no way you can replicate. My brother is the most. Uh, published scholar on the presidency in the world, teaches at Texas A&M and Balliol College, Oxford. And you can't, and, and there's no way you can replicate. If, if we look back, uh, you would have thought that, remember Joe Biden in March of 2020, people were talking about Andrew Cuomo replacing him because he was flailing so much. Uh, do you remember uh, talking about at this point in 2016, there was a guy from Florida, from Miami, uh, I think Jeb Bush had had $200 million, no, I think he had $125 million, let's not exaggerate. Right. But he had all this organization and all these endorsements and all this infrastructure, and I don't even think he made it to a primary. <laughs> no, he, uh, he, he dropped out to South Carolina, actually. He did run in a primary, but he didn't get any delegates, I don't think. Okay, yeah, he got zero delegates. So at this point, it's very, very... Uh, premature. Premature. And all these things that you see, like uh, Robert Kennedy with his favorabilities. Okay. Uh, my brother and I did an interview, and uh, you know I did Giuliani's kickoff uh, in the whole in when he kicked 2007? off at at uh, yes at St. Pete High, and I but I was a McCain delegate. Uh, I really like John, but uh, uh, Senator McCain. But my brother pointed out, and we did an interview that if you once you learned about Rudy Giuliani, even when he was at forty nine percent in the primary polls, he, he, that it went down to zero, mm-hmm. and that he had no chance, no pathway, and like Robert Kennedy. It would be a great Republican candidate, uh, but he's a horrible Democratic candidate. Right. I mean, so. But as, it also doesn't that show you how vulnerable Joe Biden is if there was a serious person running against no, him but, in the Democratic because, primary? Because now it's all speculative. It's not serious. And so numbers are much higher. His favorabilities are much higher because you don't know anything about it. it it's, it's, it's a dream. You put whatever you say, Robert Kennedy. Oh, my God. Boy, if I had been alive and could vote for John F. Kennedy or Robert Kennedy. Right. The name then, is important. But then you find out that he believes that all vaccines, not just COVID. He, he said that COVID was a weaponized some crazy comment. He, he thinks that uh, measles and rubella and mumps vaccines cause autism. There was one study in the entire world that said that there was a link between autism. And I know people that have children with autism. Right. You, you no, got, he, he's, he's a discredited <coughs> ca- candidate. And that guy went to that. prison yeah. for that study, but it shows you how bad misinformation but can I, be. But I want to go back, Barry Edwards. Again, we're talking to uh, political strategist Barry Edwards. Later in the hour, we're going to have Elaine uh, Gregory from the uh, uh, Tampa Bay Times talking about her story, but we got Barry for a few more minutes here. Barry Edwards, uh, again, let's stay with Joe Biden for a second because, uh, again... He controls the infrastructure. I worked on the uh, Kennedy campaign in 1980. Ted Kennedy? So you you go both sides here, Democrat, Republican. I'm not... I don't know whether I'm a Republican or a Democrat. All I know is I'm a red, white, and blue American. Um, I, I always think of like the way Garcia's uh, call him the creative loafing political whore. I always think about that, you know. But nevertheless, but Barry, so uh, I, I've said this to you, you know, off air about Gavin Newsom, who I think is considered too liberal to oh, he's way too White liberal House. Right, right, right. But nevertheless, again, what he did last week, uh, debating Sean Hannity on Fox News, I think was powerful to hear Democrats, to hear an articulate, progressive vision of America that you do not hear from Joe Biden because he is not a good communicator. And that, to me, is a real problem. 
problem for him for the fact that, uh, you know, in terms of people maybe like this when he's done it, it's policy-wise, but the fact that he can't really get that message out, he has no press conferences. There's not a lot of confidence, I see, in terms of the Democrats and well, pushing him out for Let's talk about a presidential election. Okay, why is presidential elections so much higher turnout, even in Florida, which is one of the high turnout states, if not the highest, in the country of the major big states? It's because there's all the media attention. So if Joe Biden stayed in the basement of the, or the Rose Garden like Jimmy Carter did, it wouldn't matter. If you look back at the vaunted uh, Obama machine, what per, the percentage of the turn, total turnout in Florida in 2008 was 75.5%. Now, John Kerry, I would argue, is not as charismatic and not as good a communicator, but it was 77.5% in 2004, or 2% higher in the state, and then in 2012, it dropped to 73.5. So for all of the charisma, charisma, and my brother has shown too, Dr. Edwards, George C. Edwards III from Texas A&M right now, that charisma is not a factor in winning elections. It, it, it really is negligible. And you get charisma when you're president. If you're president, people think you have charisma. So, yeah. you, so you think that it's a <laughs> bad rap that Ron DeSantis does not have charisma because that's what people say about well, him. I think Ron DeSantis has a certain type of charisma. I mean, he's not like he's not like talking to a wall. But not and, like and, Donald Trump, for example. He doesn't have the charisma of a Trump. I mean, you know, who was, a, of course, a TV well, personality. And Trump is a an aberration. I mean, and, and Trump, for good or ill, when, when he's an, a jerk, which I think he is often, he comes across with that twinkle in the eye or the smile when he says little hands or I, well, I don't forget who he's insulted over the years. Right. But like in Anthony Sabatini, who's a right wing uh, guy from Central Florida, when he says the same thing, it comes across mean. as crass, right. acerbic, caustic, acrimonious. And so a totally different. So Trump is a one of a kind beast, soon to be extinct. I want to, by the way, tell people, um, somebody has asked this <clears throat> online about abortion pills. And of course, last night, uh, abortion pills will remain legal in Wyoming after a judge ruled that the state's first-in-the-nation law to ban them won't take effect July 1st as planned while a lawsuit proceeds. That is not on the national level. That's just in Wyoming. But that they would be the first state, by the way, to try to ban that. As we know, going again, speaking about the one-year anniversary of the uh, Dobbs decision, is that roughly half abortions in America are by a pill now, actually. Right. So this is where some of the, the uh, anti-abortion folks are really kind of pushing there. Um, so again, in the few minutes we have... Well, what, what I find interesting, yeah. too, and running over here and listening to different stations, is the attack on unelected bureaucrats. Or unelected, or this. Well, like judges, or well, I was going to get to that. Yeah. So the champion on uh, my friends on the right are the judiciary, right? The Supreme Court. Well, they're unelected. They're not. I don't know if you call them a bureaucrat, but they're un, certainly unelected. They're appointed. So because they were, the big complaint today is about the the voting regulations in New York, New Jersey, where they were going to slow you down to ten knots if your boat was over thirty five feet for the right whale. And uh, Biden administration unveiled those this morning, and they were criticizing these unelected people. Uh, one of my problems with my friends on the right is the FDA has been very credible over the years. And then for them to sue in Texas and try to ban that abortion pill, whether you believe the abortion pill should be available for abortion or not is irrelevant, is the FDA should be able to approve medicines in, that are safe, and especially when you have a 20, 30-year trial with that medicine. Right. And not, not trial, but actually use. So... Okay, one, other, one thing before we let you go, Barry, is um, as we mentioned at the beginning of the program, there's Republicans hit the 500,000 uh, voter advantage over Democrats, or, yes. I believe, earlier this week. A big celebration for the RPLF. And they're down to 38,000 uh, Democratic advantage in Hillsborough from 79,000 two and a half years ago. Really? It's yeah. that? It's that? Well, um, I it, predict they will lose their advantage before the election. 
2024. There yeah. will be Republicans will take over the uh, Democrats in Hillsborough County. You're predicting that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So uh, is the Democrats looking to, you know, uh, Miami? They're going to be in Miami in a couple of weeks for their leadership blue conference where they try to rally the troops up. Uh, and I've heard this from other Democrats, so you're not going to like be blowing my mind. But uh, people say that the Democrats, they haven't hit rock bottom. That next year may be worse than what Next year will be the rock bottom. And I know people are going to call in and say, oh, Barry, you don't understand. Well, I've talked to people at the highest level of the fun- finance part of the Biden administration. And, you know, people I've lived with whose father-in-laws were governors and things like that, or son-in-laws were governors, uh, uh, off the record. So Biden... <laughs> this no, is off the record. record. <laughs> Live radio, yeah. Uh, uh, Biden uh, is going to compete in eight to ten states, and whoever the Republican nominee is going to compete in eight to ten states. We know this for a fact, because presidential campaigns are not secretive. When you go, when a candidate goes, their spouse goes, the vice president goes, and where they spend money, and where outside groups spent money. The Biden administration spent about a quarter of their national spending in Florida with all the outside groups, about $500 million. Al spent Trump three to one. In okay. 2020. In 20, 2020. That's going to be zero. And everybody says, well, how can you do that? Why would you do that? Because it's all about the Electoral College. If you don't win outright, whoever gets one more vote gets all the votes. Right. Florida is too expensive. Why would you spend $100 million here when you know you're going to lose by 10 or 11 points? You wouldn't. You'd put that into Pennsylvania, Michigan, other states. So I, t- I'm telling you, there is... And you look at the AFL-CIO has downgraded us to a tier two. All these big progressive groups have got us tier two, tier three. They're not going to put any money in here. We're going to go from $500 million to $0 on the presidential campaign. Biden will come here to raise money, but that's it. Uh, now, right now, they're taking money just because of DeSantis and Trump because he's trying to stir it up. But for the, for the general, and so that means you're going to have $4 million per Florida House district, not congressional, but per Florida House district, less spent in Florida driving out Democrats, driving the Democratic message. $4 million per House district, it is going to be a slaughter. It's going to be the worst year, and then the Democrats will start to come back. So there you go, Democrats. Something to get psyched about. Uh, let's see. Before we got uh, one last uh, text message here. Let's see. Oh, again, again, again. The, like the number four font here, where it's like it's impossible <laughs> to read this thing. We've got we, we need to get Wayne over here. Actually, guys, uh, she's available. We can bring her in. Yeah, we're on. Uh, okay, so let me see. There's a question here. I, I'm going to try to read this. Uh, Meanwhile, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Could I could just set up Lane's uh, intro uh, unless you want to. Go uh, ahead. Go ahead. I'll be just, yeah. Okay. One second, Ben. And we just see if I can read this. So I said, this person says, I feel like the Biden staff is, oh, now we go, now we lose the computer here, is banking on, on a round. What the heck? I'm sorry here. Uh, I feel like the Biden, this is, this is very hard to read. Why? Okay. Not good radio. Okay. All right. We're going to segue from there. Okay. We'll, well, we'll get to that message. Well, but but yeah. they're saying. If you're a pro-Democrat and you think you're going to win, you think that Biden's just going to crush. Well, first of all, we know that Republicans vote 90 percent plus for Republicans. The Democrats vote 90 percent for Democrats and independents, a third the leaners vote on their side. It's only the middle third. So this entire presidential election, no matter who the nominees are, is going to be on in eight states going after 5% of the vote. Every single dollar, every single message is for those 5% of the voters in eight states. Every other state is all decided. Florida, there's no way Florida votes for a Democrat for president. There is no scenario. You could have Adolf Hitler against Jesus Christ. If Adolf Hitler was a Republican in Florida, they're going to vote for him. And the same thing in California. It could be Adolf Hitler, the Democrat, versus Jesus Christ, and Adolf Hitler is going to win in California. It's that. It it is. There is no argument. There's no fact that contradicts that. So you're eight states, 5% of the vote, $2 billion apiece, and we have a new president. 
Well, there you go. Uh, Barry Edwards, political strategist. Uh, Barry, great to see you. Thank you so much for coming in on the very short notice. You're welcome. Uh, and I really appreciate it. And so we're going to segue now. We'll go to Ben here and talk. Uh, introduce our next guest. Yeah, here. we've had uh, no small amount of conversation on this program, which, by the way, is the skinny on WMNF. You can tune in by listening to WMNF.org or 88.5. You can call us, 813-239-9663, or email DJ at WMNF if you want to reach us. But uh, we're rolling right into this. We spent no, no small amount of time on this program talking about the uh, effects of the parental rights and education bill, dubbed, of course, by opponents the don't, don't say gay bill, and uh, additional legislation that's come on uh, and has affected the way that teachers across the state are doing their jobs. Um, and with the story on Sunday in, in Sunday's Tampa Bay Times was Lane DeGregory, my dear friend, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and longtime feature writer for the Tampa Bay Times, uh, nay St. Pete Times. Um, who brings us uh, a story that I've been looking for, which is a story of a, of a teacher who's trying to make a difference, Heather Felton at Southeast High School in Bradenton, um, who, uh, you know, by uh, all evidence, had positive effect on many, many children and has kind of hit the end of the road right in terms of teaching public school in, in Florida. Lane, how did you find this story and, and, um, uh, and how did you meet Heather? Yeah, so I was looking for a story like this, too. I just kept thinking every piece of legislation that was passed eroded the teachers' rights a little bit more and controlled what they could or couldn't say in their classroom. So I wanted to find a teacher who'd been doing it for a while, who was passionate about it, and was struggling, right? Yeah. And so my friend used to be a teacher. She quit last year when she had a baby. Heather Felton was her mentor. And so she reached out to Heather, and she said, you know, would you talk to Blaine? And basically, that we met at, I think, at Applebee's. Oh, Heather, I don't remember. Heather's on here, too. Nice. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Yeah, so she, we met at Applebee's, and she said, I, I don't think I can do this any longer. And I think it, that when we first met Heather, you hadn't completely decided. Is that right? You were on that path, but you hadn't completely made I your was decision. On the, yeah, I was on the path. It was, it was pretty clear that the way the legislative session was going, that I was not going to come back at the, the start of the new school year. It, it was pretty obvious. What brought you to and teaching? Then of course, what, what, what brought you to teaching to begin with, Heather? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can you tell us how, oh, you, no, how you got into the, the profession in the beginning? I wanted to be a teacher from as long as I can remember. I had excellent teachers um, in elementary school. My two high school literature teachers were phenomenal. Um, and I loved reading and uh, sharing books. Um, uh, I kind of veered off for a while, got into journalism, uh, did that for 10 years, um, got into church ministry, did that for a while, but that kept working towards education, back towards education, back towards education. And eventually I went in and told my priest, look, I, I need to go be a teacher. Mm. And uh, so I, I left, working, left working in ministry and went straight into the classroom. Yeah, that little bit of color in the story about you um, under the uh, your bed sheets with the flashlight reading books. I was like, man, that's like my dream for my kid. I would love to catch my kid also, doing that. I, I, I liked uh, re reading an English class, but with the reading book inside of the English book, you know, or the reading book in the yeah. lap while the English book is open on the desk. Yeah, I, I got in trouble for that quite a bit. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so when did uh, the first signs start to appear for you, Heather, that, that your job might be different? This is going back to March of 2022 with uh, the passing of the Parental Rights and Education Bill. Did that cause concern for you? Yes, it did. And, and my, my husband, um, um, our administrators are like, you know, this doesn't affect you. This doesn't affect you. And I, 
and a couple buddies of ours ever like no this is going to trickle up it's gonna it's going to affect us it's going to affect us um then uh as as the year kind of we went finished out spring fall starts then we start getting letters that say oh well we can't have uh we can't have individual meetings with students where if they reveal something to us we have to tell their parents um we can't use their uh their names that they have asked us to call them it could be you know hezekiah wants to be called kai oh well that's okay but if hezekiah wants to be called jane that's a no Mm. um so, how much of this uh, was direct instruction to to the staff from the administration, and how much was was it you guys being asked to interpret law for yourselves? Oh, we're, it was basically we were asked to interpret law for ourselves mm. and to err on the side of caution. A lot of it was kind of cover your butt. Um, what do you need to do to protect yourself? Is this what um, you had suspected, Lane, what you had heard from other teachers and so forth, that they were doing that interpretation themselves? It wasn't necessarily like, you know, these are the books you should ban. These are the things you can and cannot say. It was sort of, we have to A lot of confusion. Out. That's yeah. what I was getting from a lot of teachers was confusion. They weren't sure what they had to do, what they were going to get in trouble for. Heather, I think, went and looked for lists in the library of what was approved and what wasn't and tried to get things approved, but there wasn't even a process that you could go, here's the books you can't teach. It was like, well, if it might be offensive, you know, and I think the whole idea of like one person could complain, right? And then it has to get pulled. It doesn't have to be like some kind of vetted hearing. It's like one person thinks, oh, you shouldn't read this Toni Morrison book and then bam, it's gone after years and years and years in the curriculum. And I should say too, Heather teaches IB as well as regular English. So she had a whole separate curriculum for the higher level kids. It's like an internationally prescribed reading list that all of a sudden she had to worry about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, sure. My well, brother went that, to that. Oh, I was just saying with that list too, they give us, uh, the IB has a prescribed reading list of 6,000 authors. How do you get that vetted? <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the, the Moms for Living is going to go pet it for you. Yeah, they, they yeah. happen. Yeah, yes. unfortunately. Yeah, and it's not even books. It's authors. Now you have to go back and vet everything that author has written. And these are authors, these people, those people, I can't even, um, have never even heard of. I mean, I was using a, a poet uh, who's Aborigine out of Australia. They've never heard of her. But I guarantee they're going to freak out because she's a person of color. Mm-hmm. You know, it, so it it was very scary trying to figure out how to navigate that, and and our media specialists and our principal are doing the best they can, but they're not getting any direction either, and that made it even more difficult. And uh, with no con- you know straight list of these books cannot be used, mm-hmm. we have now removed these books. Um, Okay, they were vetted before, but now they're removed, but we haven't necessarily heard that they've been removed. So that means I might still have it in my room. And then, you know, little Tony's mom finds out I have this in my room, and now am I going to be arrested? It, it, there's just too much hanging over our heads. I wanted to ask you something. Um, the story talks about you and Sean and, and your time in journalism and checking that night log and uh, and you've been married for 24 years. But there's a little bit of a quote about, you know, nobody in their right mind would um, enforce this. And this is something I've been trying to get a public official to tell me on the record forever is what is the appetite for somebody who's in charge of the cops in any municipality or the sheriff 
um, to either direct them to enforce this or, or not. They won't. Public officials will not speak to me on the record about whether, yeah. explicitly whether or not they would uh, encourage their local law enforcement to enforce this. And nobody really knows who's going to enforce this. DeSantis' election police? What, what, have, what are those conversations like um, amongst teachers and in, on administrative level at your school about whether or not anybody's going to enforce this? Has there any, been any messaging on that? No, there there really hasn't. Um, we've been just mostly trying to figure out how to not get in trouble. Um, and my husband is right. You know, he's 25, 26 years in law enforcement, and he's absolutely right. Nobody, he said, nobody's going to want to enforce this. Nobody's going to want to go arrest a teacher because, oh, you have that book on your shelf that even though it's behind your desk, a kid still saw the cover. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's going to want to enforce that, but how how do you make a stand as a law enforcement officer when you're given a direct order? Right. Has there been an appetite uh, for it, many? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, that was that was really that was really my the end of that thought is that you know what what do they do? How do they deal? Well, it kind of makes me think about you know folks who are willing to get arrested for for things like this, protesters or things like that. Has there been much talk like among teachers of saying, "Listen, I'm going to be the one." Well, I quit, so I wouldn't be the one. Yeah. To be honest, um, I don't want to be the one arrested. I've got a kid in college and another kid getting ready to go into, hopefully go into college. Um, we're, we're talking to, to our daughter about, you know, maybe maybe college would be an option for her after all. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I can't really spend, you know, five sure. years in jail. What about you, Lane? Have you talked to any teachers who've kind of expressed that? I'm actually profiling a, a- counselor this weekend who's a grand marshal in the St. Pete Pride Parade who is a middle school counselor in Largo and he says come and get me. <laughs> he's counseling LGBT awesome. kids mostly. He's a, he's a gay young man. He's 25 years old. He doesn't have children or you know things to lose like that. Sure. And he's like I'm sticking in. I'm doing this. His name's Alex Quinto and um, he wants to be one of the last men standing. And obviously not to give away too much of your reporting um, already but when you talk to Alex is it like where are they going to find this money to, to do this? Like what's the plan? Like, can you give us any shreds of, of kind of Alex's thinking a little bit further than what you said? He, he is trying to make Heather this little uh, interest you because I was like, how do you do this? He said the whole thing is about permission. So he's trying to make a permission slip that would have give to all 300 eighth graders at Largo Middle School next year that he counsels that would say, yes, I can talk to your kids about whatever I want to talk to them about. So if kids, if families opt out, at least he knows who he can't, but the rest of them, he feels like maybe that would be a way in, but he's just flying by the seat of his pants trying to figure it out just like everybody else, you know? Yeah. Can you put that story out already? I want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I want to say I'm about Heather is the, the Rainbow Alliance, right? Because that was a piece we haven't really talked about, about. Tell us about the Rainbow Alliance, Heather. How did that come to be? Uh, well, my eldest child, Indigo, is non-binary and asked that, um, this is my second year at Southeast High School, asked that I sponsor the club. Um, their advisor was moving to a different school and they needed and needed a faculty sponsor. So I said I would do that. And um, so um, kids who uh, fell into the LGBTQ community, uh, kids who didn't, would come to club, we'd have fun, we'd watch movies, we did a uh, anti-discrimination week where we uh, sold uh, rainbow pins and bracelets and gave out coexist stickers and and promoted, you know, not discriminating and, and had a, a lot of fun with it. Everybody dressed in rainbows on the last day of the week. Um, we had a great time. 
Uh, I took them to also youth does a um, alternative prom every year. And I took the kids to the prom there. It was, it was a blast. I had a fabulous time. Um, but then this year, when, when these rulings are trickling down and nobody knows, do we have to out our students? Do we, can, can we call them by their uh, correct pronouns or do we have to, you know, dead name them? Um, the, the kids stopped coming. I think they got scared. And, and that was really, that was really hard for me um, because I want them to trust me. My room is always a safe space and. Well, you had um, to be clear with them, though, that maybe your room was no longer a safe space. I think that was like the, right? the worst part of the story for me to read. My heart broke yeah. there. Well, you know, um, now that I'm no longer employed, I can say that it was still a safe space. I wasn't going to tell yeah. anybody diddly squat. Yeah. So on uh, a, a bigger picture here, um, the Florida Education Association, which represents more than 150,000 public school teachers, told you, Lane, yeah. that uh, uh, Florida had more than 5,000 vacant teacher positions, the highest ever, uh, and that local districts um, are going to have a hard time filling these roles because teachers have left the field in droves or have left Florida, at least in droves. Is this legit? Both, I think. They're, they're leaving the profession and they're also leaving the state to go teach somewhere else. And I didn't realize he also represented um, higher education um, educators. And he said the same thing's happening in higher ed. I'm also working on a story about New College um, that has lost dozens of professors, if not more. Um, so, I, yeah. I, this I is New College in Sarasota, which uh, the, the Board of Governors, Board of Trustees was revamped uh, to remake it as a sort and of the whole curriculum, of basically, right? They're trying college. to change yeah. into a Hillsdale College of uh, of the Southeast yeah. here. Yeah, they ousted the president and a bunch of the trustees <laughs> got replaced. And so the whole school's, you know, it was a pretty liberal school. And Very now liberal. They're yeah. trying to change that. So, yeah, I don't know what Florida's going to do to to recruit teachers. You know, I, I don't know what teachers are going to be able to come into this climate and knowing what they have to navigate like Heather. I mean, she's yeah. been doing it for over a decade and, is, and, and can't figure out what they're expected to do, you know? So yeah. Heather in, in the, and I've got these yeah. new teachers coming in. Oh, um, Heather, what do I do without? I'm like, sweetie, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You, I mean, yeah, you got you got, you got a tattoo in the in the midst of all this. It sort of symbolizes <laughs> this this, uh, this. I don't know. It, Unpa- it unpack this for us. It says it says sometimes yeah. there is nothing you can do. Yeah, there's a powerful it photo is, by Jeffrey Wu of, of in there of, yeah. of your photo of the and, tattoo. Uh, it's a it's a quote from uh, the book Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, one mm-hmm. of my favorite authors. Um, and the main character Richard says this twice in in the the book. Um, and not only does it, it say that, you know, sometimes there's nothing you can do, you have no recourse, but also sometimes there's nothing you can do but the right thing. Mm. They give him the opportunity to back out of certain situations a couple times. And he says, you know, sometimes there's nothing you can do, and which means you just have to go forward. You have to do right. And um, so this is, this is a double reminder for me. It's a reminder that sometimes I, I can't, I can't just sit here and, and watch and wait and keep my head down. I have to do the right thing. And sometimes there's nothing I can do about the people who are insistent of doing the wrong thing. And Heather, uh, so that is my reminder. We, uh, we know you've got to 
we've got to run here in a second, but um, what's next for you? I, I just want to point people, if, if they want to send you a message of encouragement or what have you, you can find Heather and how to contact her, heathergfelton.com. Um, Heather, what's next? Well, um, I have, I've launched my website. I've started a blog um, about this crazy ride that I'm on now that this story has gone public. Um, and then also I am looking to get involved. I have uh, signed up to go uh, to uh, St. Pete Pride this weekend. I will be at the Equality Florida booth doing my thing for them uh, this af- uh, sub- Sunday afternoon. Um, I'll be there and um, I'm, I'm trying to look to get involved. And uh, I'm meeting actually today with the, the Manatee County League of Women Voters. They wanted to meet me. Mm. Uh, and talk to me about education. So I'm doing that today as well. Mm. So uh, as as for what's next, I couldn't tell you, but I'm open to whatever comes. What's the website, uh, Heather? HeatherGFelton.com. Heather, uh, thank you so much for your service as a son of a couple of uh, public school teachers. Thank you for your service to the children and... Um, we wish you the very best and hope you hang in there and keep doing what you do. Keep using your teacher Thanks voice, Heather. Keep using your teacher voice. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And, and we want to stick around here for just a few more minutes. So the last of the time we have left to um, talk uh, with my friend, Lane DeGregory. By the way, I should back up just a second. Uh, uh, goodness gracious. I think part of the reason that I am sitting in this chair right now is Lane DeGregory. Part of the reason that I moved to Tampa, Florida in 2005 in a roundabout way is the woman who's sitting right across uh, the table in the studio from me. Um, and uh, we first met probably back in 2002 or 2003 when you were speaking at uh, a Neiman Narrative Conference in Boston. I remember this like it was yesterday. I sat in the audience as a young reporter and listened to you uh, regale us with um, tips on how to find these wonderful stories that you've spent a career finding. And uh, and it was it was changing for me. And I stood up at the end and I, I think I probably stumbled around when I said this, but I said, we print you out and we pass you around. It's true. Where I was working at the Times Herald Record in New York, we used to print Lane DeGregory stories off and pass them around the newsroom to learn from, uh, from these stories, from the way that you did what you did. And um, that's probably the highest compliment that I could give you because uh, um, in that crowd are some people who are now really well-regarded journalists, including uh, my friend Michael Cruz, who's doing some of the best work today uh, in politic- political writing for Politico. Um, all of this uh, leads me to this. You have um, published a- an anthology, The Girl in the Window and Other True Tales, an anthology with tips for finding, reporting, and writing nonfiction narrative. This is uh, right up your alley. This is exactly what I've been waiting for because the perfect book to pass out to anybody who's trying to be a journalist or wants to be a writer or wants to learn how to do nonfiction. The book is part anthology and part craft guide. And it also gives a forensic reading of 24 of your uh, stories, including Girl of the Window, which won you the Pulitzer Prize in 2008. Lane, what other stories besides Girl in the Window will we find in this wonderful collection? Oh, it was so hard to choose. To tell you the truth, I've written over 3,000 stories, you know, in the 30 years I've been in this career. So I started out trying to think, what are the ones that people talked about the most? You know, not necessarily the ones that got an award or whatever, but the ones that people were really talking about. And I taught 
um, journalism at USF for a couple semesters, and I've taught at a bunch of other people's journalism classes. So I started out with some of the stories that the students liked or read because I had their questions to start out with. Like, so the book has, you know, the stories themselves and then little notes on the side and the margins that are like, here's how I found this guy. Here's how I got this lady to talk to me. Here's where that document came from. And a lot of those x-ray vision reading things came from the students in the mm-hmm. classes over the years. Oh, wow. So I had this idea like pop-up video, you know, back in the day where you would see like, hey, this is where Mick Jagger got that shirt, you know. So I wanted to use those little details to help journalists or writers figure out how to navigate the reporting process, the writing process. There's some stuff in there about structure. There's stuff I screwed up, you know, what I did wrong, what I wish I'd known. So there's 24 stories. The first one is the one, um, one of my favorite ones, which I stumbled across about these kids from Wisconsin who got off work from a Wendy's in the middle of the night and it was freezing in April and they pulled their $300 paychecks and bought Greyhound bus tickets and took the bus to St. Petersburg because they'd never seen the beach. And this kid's aunt lived in St. Petersburg and he was like, oh, we're going to go, you know, go get warm. And we we ran into him on the bus. And so we ended up riding the bus with these two 18-year-old kids as they were trying to find they thought it was the ocean. We were like, no, it's the Gulf. But <laughs> we spent about four hours with them on the bus as they were searching for the beach. And then just the joy that they found when they finally got there and tasted salt water for the first time. Um, so I wanted to start the book with that because it's such a Florida story. And I think it reminds a lot of us here how magical our state is. You know, we forget, oh, that's a pelican. Oh, my God, I've never seen a palm tree. You know, stuff like that. Just watching through the window of the bus brought them so much joy. Yeah. So. Are these your 24 best stories or do you think they're 24 stories that we can learn from? I think there's, there, first of all, they span a gamut. I want uh-huh. to have different voices, different subject matter. You know, some of them are off the news. There's one from Pulse nightclub shooting, which is super sad. There's Stormy Daniels on the strip pole, which was kind of fun. Um, so there's different tones and tenors. So I wouldn't necessarily, they were like my my best or even my favorites, but ones maybe that speak to a certain bucket of types of journalism and I thought ones that could be fun to read mostly. A lot of listeners, I'm sure, weren't around in 2008 when Girl in the Window ran, was that 2008 or 2007? 2008. In in the pages of the the St. Pete Times. Tell us about that story, and if you have any updates, that that's been a uh, you know more than a decade ago. But what's going on with Danny and her family? Um, if, for those who have heard that story, yeah. So that was a story. The title story is about um, a feral child who was found in Plant City. Um, she was, I think, seven years old when she was found by police and taken away, and then she subsequently got adopted by this family who was trying to save her through love, basically. Um, And they moved to Tennessee. And so I last saw them about three years ago. Um, When Danny turned 18, I went down for her 18th birthday. So it had been a decade since I'd met her. Mm -hmm. And um, her parents had gotten divorced, unfortunately, because of the stress and the care of her. And um, she was her dad. When she turned 18, she lost her services um, through the schools and the children's funding. So her dad put her in a group home and she was living in a group home with other people who had disabilities. Yeah. Um, she never learned to talk. Um, but I heard her laugh. And, I, you know, the first few times, not times, we spent six months with her first and then another week with her later. Um, and she was just very um, distracted and upset and agitated. Mm. And when I saw her when she was 18, she laughed. And that was pretty, pretty joyous. Mm. Can I ask you, um, you've been at the Times since 2000, I believe it was? Correct. Yeah, and so um, there's been, a, the Times is very different than it was back then. Journalism, of course, is daily journalism. Certainly, uh, the paper only publishes twice a week now, actually. Um, and you're, you're, you've been there. I don't know how many other folks who, who 
were writing back then uh, are doing it still now. Uh, and you still have a you have very unique style in terms of your feature writing. Uh, can you describe to me, you know, the, the fact that you still can do what you do there when we've seen a lot of other things that we don't used, used to see in the Times, you know, we don't see that anymore, but you continue to be able to get the freedom to do what you do now. I need to knock on wood somewhere. I feel so lucky. I mean, I really do. The paper has changed so much. When Ben and I worked together, we had a team of six people that did enterprise feature writing stories. We had every day a section, you know. Now we have, like you said, two days a week. A lot My stories are more off the news now. They're not as many just, here's a great feature story for the sake of a feature story. You know, I'm, they're kind of pegged to events or news a lot more than they used to be. They're not as long as they used to be. Huh. You know, nobody used to blink at a hundred inch story. And now if I got, if I want 50 inches, you have to like ask for permission ahead of time. You so, have to have a deck. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> I, got, I mean, the editing is a lot, a lot harder. Um, um, not just for me, but for our editors, too, because we don't have the space to tell the stories, you know. Um, but I think the Times, you know, they're still committed to narrative. And there's not many people doing it there. <laughs> but I'm trying to, like, you know, wave the flag. And um, we're do- doing some shorter narratives, you know, thousand-word narratives um, that they're running occasionally off the front page. And so it's it's different, for sure. It's different. But I'm really happy and lucky to still be at a place where they value that type of storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Have I don't you know. changed the way you find stories, Lane? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I mean, and I think there's a lot higher bar of what makes a story mm. now. You know what I mean? They really like stuff off issues or news a lot would, more than I was worried about before. So do you think, would a Jim Cantori profile uh, make the, the pages of the Times today? Yeah, I think yeah. they'd still do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially if there's a hurricane. <laughs> Good. Good. Oh, I know I only got a couple of minutes. I don't know if I could get this question off, but you know, what we do is in, intrusive in a lot of ways. You talked about following up with Danny. How do you square that in the beginning stages of a story and kind of explain that to a source and say, hey, this is going to disrupt your life? And, and as the writer, how do you tiptoe that and, and make sure that you do uh, disrupt somebody's life as little as possible? Um, when you write these big stories? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, I've been doing this for 30-something years. That's still kind of the hardest part, you know, making that pitch at the beginning of what I want and what I need and can I get in. And I never say, like, I'm going to embed in your life for six months, you know, but I say, I'm going to need to come back, you know. And it's actually changed since COVID, I think. I spent a lot more time in people's homes before COVID. I think people are a lot more... um, reticent to have you in anymore. I'm, I'm hanging out with people on their decks, on their porch, or I'm meeting them at a cafe instead. Um, Alex, the guy I was telling you about, I'm running about now, and Heather as well, they let me into their homes. And I feel like that's when I know I've, I've been invited inside to someone's house, I feel like I'm going to get that intimate story that I really, really want. Mm-hmm. Um, I do do the like, hey, take me on FaceTime around your house, show me your bookshelf, show me your dog, you know, if I can't yeah. get in to see their space. Um, but I feel like it's harder people the, the trust level is harder than certainly even five years ago mm. you know people don't trust journalists the same way i have to sell myself or what i'm doing a little bit more explain a little bit more what i need and why but that's a tall yeah to taller task in this day and age when everything is sort of viewed through the lens of politics right yeah I mean, more things are yeah but everyone talks to you lane this is your gift uh people want to talk to you and uh and we do too more than this but we thank you our time is up you've been listening to the skinny here on wmnf uh thanks to lane to gregory and heather felton for joining us thanks to my co-hosts here mitch ferry and ray Rowe. also thanks uh, barry edwards for coming in the show so yeah thanks so much 
And Skip Sassy, of course, our great engineer. Skip doing a fantastic job. So that's it for us. We'll be back here again. Uh, transportation, Ben, right? You're gonna we're gonna get into this next week. We're gonna talk transportation next I'll week. Take Join the us. bus to work. All right. Again, uh, you've been listening to WMNF eighty eight point five FM. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Friday.